0: How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer just to make sure that we're all We're all ready that after you watch the news this evening and you read various things on the Drudge Report, you probably need 15 or 20 minutes to make sure you can get back in fellowship, but we'll only give you a few moments, so hit the high points. All right, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we have you to come to, that you are the God who watches over us, who provides for us, who takes care of us, that that you are the source of every blessing in our lives. You're the source of our jobs. You're the source of all of the good things that we have in life. Father, we pray that you would uh, just continue to uh, encourage each of us to, and strengthen us in our resolve to grow and the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that despite all the things that go on in the world, the one thing that, that matters, the one thing that has a significant impact uh, now, an invisible impact now, and an impact for eternity is our spiritual life, our spiritual walk. And Father, do not let us just take that for granted. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide for this congregation. We are Uh, in a financial situation where we need some extra attention and we know that you have always provided very faithfully for this congregation and we look forward to seeing how you will provide in the coming months now father we pray that you would also uh, challenge us tonight to focus to study to think and reflect as we go through your word to come to a better understanding of of uh, its impact on our own thinking and we pray this in christ's name amen The last week we began looking at this great chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we get into a lot of issues as we go through the scripture on a topic that for some is just too controversial to talk about, and that is politics. For many people, you never talk about religion and politics, and they must not have any fun when they talk about anything because the Bible talks a lot about politics and economics. In fact, money is one of the top five things that the Scripture talks about, and it gives us an understanding of a basic economic theory which runs counter to a lot of what goes on uh, in this country and a lot of the things that we hear about which are coming out of this whole concept of social justice has absolutely nothing to do with the Word of God. In fact, it's contrary to the Word of God for the assumption in social justice is if somebody has too much and you can't define what too much is, uh, what is the breaking point where you go from an adequate amount to too much? But if somebody has too much, then they, the government should come along and reassign uh, what they have to somebody else. And that is prohibited in the Mosaic Law. And it's prohibited in the, in the New Testament. This is called thievery. And it's, uh, taxation is one thing, but taxation to redistribute wealth is nothing more than government sanctioned theft. And it, and it is wrong and it violates all the principles of of the scripture. But this is the kind of thing that Samuel warns about, uh, warns Israel about in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now last time I started with some background. And so we need to look at that and come to and review that a little bit and come to understand that. But uh, we need to understand as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 that what the basic motivation is, as Israel comes to Samuel and the leaders, the elders of Israel come to Samuel to ask him for a king, it is that they want to be like every other nation. And one of the most destructive influences that any of us can fall into, and some of us can think back to the times when we were in in elementary school or most likely junior high or high school, when we came under the influence of peer pressure and uh, the herd instinct, as uh, my mother used to call it, and it was uh, the the strong pressure to just be like everybody else. It, It feels better to go along with everybody else than to be different, to be living according to a different kind of standard, and it puts us in a position where we're in conflict uh, with other people. So it's a lot easier to just do what's popular, what seems to be socially acceptable, but the Scripture warns that that's often the path to self-deception, I remember my mother used to say, well, if everybody else wants to jump off the Empire State Building, do you want to too? And I just had a vague concept. I see some of you nodding, and you remember your mother saying something like that. Well, I only had a vague conception of what the Empire State Building was, but she got her point across. And um, the point, one point that that saying makes is that often when we let other people set the standard and we want to be like them, they set the standard pretty low, and so we, we let people set the bar pretty low for us, and this was the problem that Israel has in the ancient world, and it's a problem that a lot of Christians have have today. We set our bar too low. We don't hold the standard. We live in a world and in a culture which has, has lowered the standard of excellence in terms of personal uh, morality, in terms of personal ambition, in terms of personal integrity, in terms of, of, of personal effort and work uh, tremendously over the last 100 to 150 years, it's been in serious decline across the whole spectrum of life. It's very rare for employers to find employees They just want to work hard for the sake of working hard and making the employer successful. And this is something that people just want a paycheck. They think they have a right to a job, and they have a right to a paycheck. But it happens across the board. It happens in churches. We've seen the bar lowered in churches, in pastors. I tell you, one of the greatest compliments I ever received was a couple of people who knew me were having a conversation. And one person was making comments that I seem to be exceptionally tough on other pastors and on churches, and holding a high standard that if you're going to go into the ministry, you need to get a at least four or five years of education, whether it's in a Bible college or a seminary, you need to learn the languages, you need to read a, a lot and you need to read extensively and exhaustively across a lot of different fields and we need to spend a lot of time learning how to use the technology that's that's available today that that we're serving the lord and that means that we need to excel and go beyond whatever uh, abilities that we we think we should so i was uh, somewhat being being uh, criticized a little bit for maybe holding the bar a little high and the per the other person involved in the conversation uh, had a military background and said that in the army ranger training that like in many other elite institutions that there's always this tendency, and I think it's true in our culture, to sort of compromise and to get a little softer, lower the standards a little bit, let a few more people in because they're sincere, they really want it, they, they've worked hard, let's not be too hard on them. And uh, and this person pointed out that there were always a few rangers that held the standard high, and, and they, they had a nickname. They were called the Keepers of the tab. Because when you go through ranger school or airborne school, you get a tab that you wear on your uniform that indicates that you've you've made it through ranger school or airborne school. And this person said, you've got to understand that Robbie is like a keeper of the tab. He's going to make the rest of us, a, you know, work harder and do better because that's what we're supposed to do. And I thought that was a great, great compliment. Because when I look out across the spectrum of what's going on in Christianity, it's just pathetic. It is absolutely pathetic, and a, a lot of it within evangelicalism is just because we, we've lost that standard. I know of a pastor, and if I get to a position where I can imitate this, I, I, I want to. I know of a pastor of a rather large church, from what I understand. He's got four or 5,000 members, and it's in a university town. So he has a lot of college kids, and because of his uh, solid ministry, a lot of these college kids have wanted to pursue some kind of professional ministry, following in his example. So he says, okay, here's the deal. We're going to meet every—the year be- before, I will— give you a pastoral recommendation to go to seminary, we're going to... We have our our seminary training group meets every week and we meet at 5 a.m. If you are one minute late, you're out of the group and I'll never write a recommendation for you. And there, he has requirements. You have to read a certain amount of Scripture every week. You have to memorize a certain amount of Scripture every week. And you have to be involved in various ministries within the local church. And there's 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 no mistakes allowed, and the ones who are willing to step to the plate are the ones that will get a recommendation from that church to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. The pastor is also on the board of Dallas Seminary, which is and he's not too far from Dallas Seminary, which is one reason he does that. But but that's that's a great great objective is to pursue excellence. A couple of weeks ago, Houston lost a quarterback and uh, let him go because he and probably it was related to the fact that he showed up late, missed the plane, ended up catching another plane on his way to the game game in miami and I learned something interesting. a lot of you have been in environments where where there was a little bit of a penalty or somebody actually said something to you if you walked in late. I was so traumatized as a teenager for walking in late that when I went to college. If my hand was on the door of the classroom and that bell went off, I would not open the door. It took me to my junior year before I would ever walk into a class two seconds late. Would never, never do that. And, and my wife told me that in theater, and, and, and I know this is true in some corporations as well, in theater, if one person shows up one second late to rehearsal, everybody in the troupe it's fine, money, real money. You know, that is holding up a standard. That's that's pursuing excellence. But what happens is we start getting our eyes on other people, and we want to be like everybody else, and that's never a good thing. It's not good when your kid tells you, well, everybody else is doing it. So that's why I titled, titled this lesson, Like Everybody Else, because that's what Israel wants. Now, to put this in perspective again, you have this structure in, in 1 Samuel, really focuses on the three key people, uh, Samuel, Saul, and David. First seven chapters, focuses on Samuel, so we've concluded the high point of Samuel's ministry at the end of, of uh, chapter 7. And then we have the rise of Saul. Chapter 8 sets the stage. Chapter 9 is when we first meet Saul. And we see Saul's rise and then his decline And in chapter 15, he's warned that the kingdom is going to be taken from him, and that's when we're introduced to David in chapter 16. And chapters 16 through 31, we see the rise of David juxtaposed with the decline of Saul. So as we look at this just in terms of the three basic divisions, God prepares to deliver the nation Israel from her enemies by grace in the first seven chapters, Then in chapters 8 through 15, God establishes the office of the king because it was always God's intent for Israel to have a king. But the ruler can't be just simply a fallen human being because fallen human beings are corrupt and they're never going to provide perfect government. And so the ultimate king that God's going to provide is, of course, the the messianic king, the Messiah, who's going to provide a perfect uh, government. And only when you combine the perfect righteousness of God with a man can you have a a government that can live up to its ideal, which is righteousness. This is what is pointed out in Proverbs 20, uh, 28, as well as in Proverbs 29, 4. Proverbs 20, 28, Loyalty and truth preserve the king, and he upholds his throne by righteousness. In Proverbs 29, 4, The king gives stability to the land by justice, but a man who takes bribes overthrows it. So just a review of the chapter, the first three verses, we get the setting. Then in verses 4 and 5, we get the elders of Israel gathered to meet Samuel at Ramah and request a king over them like all the other nations. In verses 6 through 9, Samuel takes it personally, that they've rejected him, and, but he doesn't react towards them, he just goes to the Lord in prayer, which is a great lesson that when, when something negative happens, when we're going through rejection, hostility, persecution, whatever it is, that we take it to the Lord, we don't react to the person who is uh, attacking us. So, so, in those verses, Samuel takes it personally, goes to the Lord in prayer, and the Lord tells him, no, it's not, not him that they've rejected, but God. Ultimately, these issues, and I want you to pay attention to this, because as we go into this political year, ultimately all issues go back to how we understand God and how we understand what God has said to mankind, what human race's basic problem is. Everything always goes back to God. And you can remember, I don't have the chart with me, you remember that I've used this iceberg chart in the past, that in an iceberg, nine-tenths of the iceberg is below the surface. So when we talk to most people about issues related to politics or current events, we're only talking about that one-tenth that's above the surface, just those superficial, uh, immediately apparent issues. But what's below the surface, what determines how we handle these various issues, has to do with our views on on ethics on what's right or wrong because as soon as you get into discussion with somebody and you say well i don't think we ought to let any syrian refugees come across the border they're going to say well that's wrong well wait a minute You, you just used a value judgment where do you get this value that that's wrong on what basis do you say that that's wrong see that's getting below the surface and your ethics always grow out of your uh of your understanding of knowledge how do you know Once you think you you have a system of right or wrong, how do you know it's true? How do you know it's true? And um, in fact, uh, John was telling me uh, earlier this evening that he had an opportunity to host a couple of Mormon missionaries in his home the other night, and uh, he immediately threw them off their game because he kept pursuing that question of how do you know it's true? And he went through my little epistemology chart. How do you know it 's true and and just sort of hoist them on their own petard because they can't uh, they can 't figure that out You all know what that means that 's an old English phrase comes out of Shakespeare It means it, a petard was like a a a, a explosive charge. That the engineers in a war would would they would crawl up to a wall, dig a hole under it, and stick this landmine under the wall called a petard, and then they would light the fuse and crawl away as fast as they could and if the fuse burned faster and they crawled slower, then they would be hoist on their own petard so that 's where that phrase comes from, and so they and it, it's used to refer to somebody who's whose fallacies are pointed out on the basis of their own arguments. So John did a good job with that. But, but this, this, is, this is part of the problem uh, is when we talk with people, we, we don't get below that surface, and ultimately we get down to the bottom layer that nobody wants to talk about. Where do you get your system of knowledge, your epistemology? Well, ultimately it comes back to your view of ultimate meaning. Who's, the, who's out there? What's out there? Is ultimate meaning, ultimate reality, just an extremely dense piece of matter that exploded? Or is ultimate reality a personal infinite God? So before you can really have a a significant conversation with somebody about whether or not we ought to let uh, some Syrian refugees across the border, we really need to have a serious discussion about the existence of God. That's what I mean. Everything flows from your presuppositions about ultimate reality. So the problem that we've got in Israel is that they're rejecting God. They're not rejecting Samuel. And when you start rejecting God, something has to be put in God's place. You've got to fill that vacuum with something. And so in Israel's history, they kept uh, turning, abandoning God and turning to idols. And so this, this impacts your whole view of government and culture and society just goes, goes downhill. So we'll get into some of those issues. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that should be uh, 19 to 20. I didn't fix that from last week. Uh, the people reject the warning because arrogance, arrogance is tenacious. Let me make this more applicational. Your arrogance and my arrogance are tenacious. We don't want to admit it. It is self-deceptive, and so we don't think it's really that bad. But trust me, the Bible says it is. You're not okay, and neither am I. So First Samuel 8, 21 to 22, the Lord tells Samuel to obey their voice. So what we saw last time, briefly, was on the age of the Gentiles, the first age, there are three dispensations, the dispensation of innocence, the dispensation of human conscience, which ends with the flood, and that's when God established a covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, and that's 9, 1 through 7, and that's the dispensation of human government. So the government is righteous because God ordained it. And because God ordained government, God instituted government, God has the right to define the parameters of government. God has to has the uh, right to determine what is good government and what is right government and what makes good government good or bad and ultimately, in this life, there's always going to be the problem that government is going to be limited by the quality and the uh, and the character. Of the people who govern, because if they're operating on their sin nature, it's going to be a foolish and and corrupt government. And if they're operating on a higher morality, or if they're operating on biblical truth, then it's going to be uh, a more virtuous government. And that's part of the quotes I gave last week from people like John Adams and James Madison and many of the founding fathers, that the government that they established within the U.S. Constitution presupposed a moral people. It presupposed a responsible people, and without responsibility and morality, it would collapse. So we looked at that, and then I want to take us up to Deuteronomy. That's the history. We've seen that divine institution number four, human government, was attacked at the Tower of Babel, and this is when you have the first a uh, human government that's that's really evil come along to corrupt the divine institution, and that's Nimrod. When he, they they gather on the plain of Shinar at ba- uh, Babel, rather than uh, rather than to scatter on the face of the earth, as God said in the Noahic covenant, they get kept together. They built a city, they built a tower in opposition to God, and so God scattered their languages, which establishes the next or the fifth and last divine institution. Uh, which is nations. So as we look at this, I want to go through some background in Deuteronomy. Remember, Deuteronomy is Moses' uh, sort of a rehearsal review of what's in the Mosaic Law, and he does add a few things that are not in uh, the earlier books of of the Pentateuch. So in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, he lists several qualifications for, for leaders. One reason this is important is that I pointed out this study done by Donald Lutz last, uh, last week where he was a political science professor here in Houston at U of H, and he and his students over a period of seven or eight years went through and analyzed all of, I mean, about 15,000 speeches, letters, diaries, uh, and um, other things written by by the founding fathers. They also broke it down. It's a fascinating study, but the bottom line is that, that the, the, throughout the period from 1760 to 1805, the most often quoted source was the Bible. Depending on which period you're in, last week I said the second most was John Locke, and that really applies to the first 20 years. Late after that it was Montesquieu, it shifts. But the number two got, human author that they quoted, um, was the was now it slips my mind, um, the law? Who was the guy who interpreted the law? Black, Blackstone, yeah. I always get him confused because there's another William Blackstone, who's the first Zionist in the 1880s, and they had the same name, and I get him confused. It's understandable. Okay, so let's list. The passages of the of the scripture that are most often quoted, and this is one of them that is most often quoted, where Moses tells them they're selecting leaders. Notice the people are selecting leaders. So there's a pattern here of democracy, where the people are to make the choice of who are, who's going to be their who's going to be their tribal representatives. They are to make a choice. Now, what's the standard for making the choice? To choose wise, understanding. And knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and Moses says, and I will make them heads over you. So, what are the qualities that we should look for for excellent leadership? Notice it doesn't have anything to do with the kind of PC qualities that are being touted so often today. It has to do with character. Someone, people who are uh, solid in their character, and more and more we learn that for this to take place, they have to be the product of a stable home environment. Think about that just a little bit in terms of current events. I won't press the point home too much. But they are products of a stable home environment. They are products of what God describes in uh, Moses describes in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that the parents are to uh, constantly talk about the word of god with their children and their uh, going and coming standing up sitting down in other words in the whole realm of life parents should be constantly interacting with their children to help them understand how to look at the issues of life from the framework of the word of god and this can be anything from doing chores around the house that god says that we're to do all things to glorify him so we work not as men pleasers but we work to, to glorify God and to do our best not for uh, if their kids, not just to do our chores to the, to the best of our ability for our parents, but to do our chores to glorify God. Later, and that sets the stage so that later on when they go to work for somebody, then you've established a, a, a great work ethic in the home. I had a great example of this I saw the other day. Total surprise. I walked into, the, there's a new Rudy's Barbecue up by Tomball. And I walked in uh, with, uh, Alan was with me and Bryce, and we walked in there. And I walked up to order, and I looked at this girl who was there. You're going to get a kick out of this, Jeff. And I looked at this girl, and I went, I know you. I know you from Camp Arete. And I looked at her, and I said, I recognize you, but I couldn't remember her name. I knew who she was. Her family goes over to uh, Grace Bible Church, David Dunn's church. And, uh, anyway, so, uh, she looked at me, she said, you seem familiar too. And I told her who I was, her eyes got this big. And she turned to her twin, who's working the other cash register. And yeah, you know who she is. And then their older sister was there also. And they all, they all came over, but these kids had been homeschooled. And the way they worked together and the level of responsibility that they demonstrated working behind the counter there was a real testimony. I mean that was just tremendous to see that, and you and that is the product of parents who are training them in the home, and that's where solid character begins, is with parental uh, parental training. Now, when we look at uh, at these these qualities qualities of wisdom, understanding, and, no, and knowledge, that comes as a result of a life that is that is disciplined. You learn that discipline hopefully in the home. The more you learn discipline in the home, the better it's going to be when you grow older. When I was in elementary school, back uh, they they had on one side of the report card, they had your alphabet grades for uh, arithmetic and reading and geography and uh, grammar and all those things. On the other side, they listed various character traits, and you would get a check, plus, or minus – now, I think that in, in, in elementary school, they started everybody's at a minus, and you have to work your way up. And when I got to be about the fourth grade and got to where I understood a little bit about what my dad did in World War II, he had his Marine Corps K-bar knife, and he said that if I would get a plus in self-discipline, then I could have that. And so I all the way through sixth grade, because sixth grade back then was in elementary school, and I never got a plus. I always got checks, but I never got a plus. Then I graduated and went into uh, junior high. In junior high, they had a different philosophy. Everybody started with an E, and you had to screw up to get knocked down. So I didn't screw up any, so that first two six-week grading periods, I got E's and a K-bar knife. That was it. But you had to show, I had to show that I learned self-discipline and therefore could handle something like that responsibly. And that gets, gets taught in the home. And that's the beginning stages of growth and, and maturity. And in the New Testament, we're told that self-discipline is a product of the Holy Spirit. When we walk by the Spirit, He produces fruit in our lives, and the last fruit that's listed in Galatians 5.22 is self-control. So that allows us then, when we have self-control, to focus on the Word, to study the Word. God the Holy Spirit uses it to mature us, and it produces wisdom. In the Scripture, wisdom isn't knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to take knowledge and use it skillfully to produce something of value. It's used of the artistic ability of the uh, craftsman who built the tabernacle. That, that, that same word is used, and it's translated skill in those chapters. It's the Hebrew word chokmah, and that means means skill. And so it's skillful living. So this is somebody who's able to take the knowledge that they have, both academic knowledge and life experience, and apply it creatively to the problems that they're going to have leading the people of Israel. Understanding is the Hebrew word being. And I always remember that because I learned it the meaning of it onomatopoeically. Being is between. And the word, Hebrew word being means to be able to choose between things, to make the right kind of choices, to understand the issues so you can make a good choice. And the word knowledgeable here has to do with experiential knowledge that's gained from experience. So you don't necessarily want someone young, but if you can have someone that has uh, 10 or 15 years of mature life experience to bring to the issues of leading these uh, 2.5 to 3 million people through the wilderness, then that's the kind of person you want. So Moses says to choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men— from among your tribes. Now, isn't this sexist? I mean, that's exactly what the modern world would say, is this is so sexist, they're so primitive, they're just a bunch of patriarchal bigots and sexists. No, because God, when God created man and woman, he created them, we're told in Genesis 1, male and female. It's very specific. And he gave ma- male specific responsibilities with regard to the creation. And he gave female specific responsibilities. Women are responsible to bear children. It's really hard for guys to do that. That seems sexist to me. That's a joke, a little, being a little facetious there. But that's how the modern world argues. You say, okay, only, only women can have, have babies well. We're supposed to have equal rights here. Well, that's not how God works. God says men have certain jobs and women have certain jobs. There's roles for males and roles for females. And he designated men to be leaders. But, but leadership gets all screwed up because of carnality. The concept of leadership in the scripture is always related to humility and servanthood. It's not related to. It's not related to some sort of authoritarian tyranny. Now, when you also get into those first chapters of Genesis, you realize that women are created to be an ater for the man, a helper to help him go where God wants him to go. And that word ater is is a value. The feminists come along and say, "Oh, helper, that's just an assistant. She's a servant." You know, the Bible is just down on women. Actually, the only other person that is called an etzer in scripture is God. So if Aetzer is a demeaning term, then we've demeaned God because God calls himself an Aetzer. Remember, we studied that with the rock of help, Ebenezer, uh, Ebenezer. That's that same word, the word Eliezer. There's two different names. If you go back to Genesis and you read about Abraham, Abram had a servant called Eliezer. With an A Z E R, but it's the same form of the word, and it means God is my God is my helper. Then you get to um, uh, um, you get to no that's that should be L-E-H or E L I E Z E R, and then you get to the son of of Aaron, and it's Elazar E L. A z e r e l e a z e r, same form of the word, and it means God has helped. Okay, so they're, they're, they're cognates, but that's the difference between Eleazar, who's Abram's servant, and Elazar, who is Abram's son. So, we're to choose wise, understanding, knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads for you. So Moses says, "I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men." There's that repetition. God's really emphasizing that leaders need to be wise and knowledgeable. We don't often choose wise and knowledgeable leaders, whether it's a city government or national government. In fact, I know of a district in Houston that is a—I'm not Houston. I know of a district in in Texas. And, in fact, the, the congressman is stepping down, and there's going to be some others who are vying for that position— and because it's a Democrat district, it's going to be one of these Democrats. And of the ones that have come forward, they don't have a whole lot of knowledge about government and about the world and about foreign affairs or Israel or any of these other things. And that is not atypical. Many, many congressmen that get elected are, they're, they're veterinarians or they're teachers or they're, you know, they're exterminators or whatever they may be. But they they go to Congress, and they've never been to Israel. They don't know anything about what really goes on in the Middle East. They've been brainwashed by the press, one side or the other. But they're pretty much local yokels. We're not picking wise and understanding leaders to to govern our country. So Moses emphasizes that, the God emphasizes that wise and knowledgeable men, make them heads over you, and then they're divided up. Notice leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens. There's organization and structure going from large to small, and that's that's important. Now in verse 16 we read, Then I commanded your judges at that time, here, saying, Here are the cases between your brethren and judge righteously. And the word that we find there is a word that we're going to find later on is the word tzedakah. It's a Hebrew word, which means that that it's the word we always translate righteous. It's the standard of God's character. So the word righteous always implies some standard. So when you hear somebody look at something and say, well, that's really righteous, they mean that is that excels in terms of a certain standard. Well, where does that standard come from? That was a point I was trying to make when I was reminding you about the the illustration with the the iceberg. You you start talking to somebody about a current event and what we should do about terrorism or whether Islam is peaceful or not, and immediately you, you make a statement, and the other person says, well, that's wrong. They have made a value judgment. Where are they getting their values? And in a discussion, that's where we need to calmly and and patiently and kindly help people understand, well, okay, you've got a value there. Is that really a a good value? Where did you get that value? Who taught you that value? Well, that works for me. Well, is that really a good way to pick out a value? What if everybody else says that 15,000 other things work for them? How are we going to find out what's truly right? Can we know what's truly right? Is there anything that's truly right? If there's not anything that's truly right, then we can't use the word right or wrong. You can't just use that just because what you really mean is, I don't like that, I'm smarter than you are, you're stupid, I'm right and you're wrong. But we can't use the words right or wrong because the very words right or wrong come from what? They come from an understanding that there is a God who created absolute right and absolute wrong. And so whenever an unbeliever uses the word right or wrong, we can just, we, we, we can nail them. Hoist them on their own petard because they don't have a, an epistemological basis. There's, there's that big word again. They don't have a basis in knowledge for determining what is right and what is wrong. But we have to do this gently. We're not there to win an argument. We're, win, we're there to convince them of the truth. Okay, and then he gives some other qualities in verse 17. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid. So you're not going to pick one minority over another just because there may have been a mistake in the past. You're going to treat everyone equally. That's the idea in the Statue of Justice where Justice, Lady Justice, is blindfolded that she doesn't look at external factors but just the facts. And so this is what God says. You shall not be afraid. In any man's presence, there's not going to be any kind of intimidation and no corruption. But what's happened today is we've got such levels of intimidation and corruption going on in, at all levels of government that, that we can't get to anything that has integrity and just look look at various issues the things that were done uh, by the Democrat Party who's headed by our president in relation to this uh, uh, Iranian, uh, anti-nuclear Iranian bill this last year was that they went around to all the members of the Democrat Party and with only two exceptions in the Senate, they they convinced them all that this was a good bill. And there's a, a, a senator, black senator from New Jersey, Who's always been very, very pro-Israel, and I wish I knew how they threatened him because he came out, and up until the day he voted, uh, voted in, in uh, you know, to allow that bill to go forward, or that treaty to go forward, he was against it, and and he said how horrible it was and how terrible it was, but he couldn't vote vote uh, uh, vote against it because. He was threatened. And some of the things that I know the Democrats did was they went to other Democrat leaders and they said, You're going to get X number of dollars from the Democrat National Party for your next reelection, but if you don't vote um, in favor of this uh, nuclear agreement or against it, whichever it was, um, you're not going to get any funding. And if you, you've got $5 million designated for this project in your uh, in your district, well, you're not going to get that either. Basically, they, they blackmailed and intimidated every other congressman and senator uh, to vote uh, so that their vote would favor uh, this Iran nuclear deal. And it's all, all that's not integrity. That's not a government with men of integrity. That's just power politics, and it will destroy a nation. Now, the next passage I want to look at is over in Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy chapter chapter 16. What we learn here in chapter 16 and 17 is that government, as God designed it, is to be based on integrity, to be based on righteousness. And the word tzedakah is a word that not only means righteous, but it also means just. It means righteous in context where it's referring to the standard of something, what makes it right or what makes it just. And it's translated just when it's talking about the application of that righteous standard to a particular situation. So what we learn from reading through Deuteronomy 16 and 17 is that in God's view, government is based on justice. It's not based on social justice, which is just a code word for socialism and communism. Social justice means it's okay. you can't steal money from your neighbor to pay your bills, but if the government comes in uh, to take their money and give it to you like Robin Hood, then it's okay. But just because it's the government doing it doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't change the ethics. So social justice is just a way of deceiving people about what's really going on in terms of theft. And in terms of destroying people's, uh, the, what people have worked for in their lives. So the government is based on justice. It's based on an absolute category. Justice is located in the, in the character of God. And these other ideas that come along today, such as social justice and individual rights, are irrelevant in the way God thinks about what makes a good, uh, leader and what makes a good, righteous, uh, judgment. So, in Deut- just to give you a little bit about context here, in Deuteronomy 16, uh, verses 21 through 17:1, there at the at the end of the uh, of the chapter, uh, s- focuses on forms of worship. Starting in 16:21, we read, "You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates." You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or a sheep which has any blemish or defect, for that's an abomination to the Lord. Those three verses are located right in the middle of all these stipulations about about government. Why do you think that is? Because what God is showing is that ethics and religion cannot be separated from righteous government. Even though we don't want to have a theocracy, and even though we're not... Uh, we're not imposing a religion on anybody. When you ask somebody where your values come from, they're either going to come from an impersonal universe, ultimately, or they're going to come from a false god, which is a demon, and I believe that Allah is just another manifestation of Satan, or it's going to come from the God of the Bible. Those are your only options. And so when, when those values come from the God of the Bible, this is why the Founding Fathers said that Christianity, the general principles of Christianity are the only foundation on which a republic can survive. Is because they understood you've got to choose a value system. And the reason we have this culture, these culture wars today is because there are many people in our country who reject values that derive from a Judeo-Christian heritage. And others want to derive their values from New Age. Others want to derive their values from from uh, Muhammad and Allah. Others want to derive their 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 uh, values from whatever makes them feel good. And that's always going to be a conflict. So so we've lost the center. The Bible has been the center of Western civilization since Christianity began to spread its wings in the first century and that is what made the difference between a pagan europe which is what it was under the under the celts and under the uh german germanic tribes and under the vandals and uh, all these other tribal groups that were pillaging through through western europe what brought them all together and changed them was biblical christianity as the missionaries took the gospel to all of those tribes and they began to change and this is what laid the foundation for modern modern civilization and western civilization without christianity we would just be uh, western uh, western europe would have just been like africa and india and the the arab tribes it would never have gone anywhere so we have to have a value system if we're even going to talk about righteous judgment Deuteronomy sixteen eighteen, going back to the beginning of the context, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes. They shall judge the people with a just, righteous, tzedakah, judgment. You shall not pervert justice. And that word there means to stretch the law. It means to stretch something or to twist something. So you're not going to twist the law to mean something to fit your personal agenda. To judge righteously means that you're judging according to an external standard that is an objective standard of right, or right and wrong. So if you don't do that, you're showing partiality. It says don't take a bribe. This is one of the problems you have. It's not as bad in the U.S. In some places it may be, but you go to places like Ukraine and I've heard this from Ukrainians. I've heard this from uh, outside sources. I've heard it from two different shaliachs. Remember last week we had uh, Idan Pesahovich here. He's a shaliach. That's from a Hebrew word meaning to send out uh, for Jaffe. And and when he he told me this when he was there, he said Ukraine will never solve their problems because uh, the the corruption that goes through government and business and everything. Is is so profoundly deep that unless there's just a, a entire cultural revolution, it, it, it's never you, you can't uproot it. So this is the problem with with bribes. A bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Verse twenty: You shall follow what is altogether just. What is and, and really the the wording of that particular verse in the in the uh, in the Hebrew is just a little bit different. It's translated a little better in the New American Standard, and it's it says, just, just, this is what you will follow. And so it's emphasizing that which is which is truly just, that you may live and, and inherit the land that God is giving you. So what we have to recognize here is that all through this section, this, this phrase of related justice or righteousness indicates an, an, external, an external set of, of absolutes that tell us exactly what, uh, what God has provided and that this is the only standard that allows people to, to organize their life and have stability, and that's the heritage that we have in this particular, uh, particular nation. Now, a problem that we have is we have a, a president who often talks about values. If you've noticed, especially in the last week, he talked about the thing that happened, the the terrorist event that happened last week, the horrible thing that happened in Paris when so many people were killed. And he said that those who perpetrated this, he doesn't want to identify who they are, those who perpetrated that uh, are violating our shared values. Frequently, he talks about this phrase, our shared values. And everybody assumes that he's talking about the values that whatever they impute to him and he imputes to them. But he never defines what those values are. But, but the, the Islamic world has one set of values. The Christian world has another set of values. The set of values that he apparently affirms sitting in the church of, uh, Je- Reverend Jeremiah Wright and, and teaching, um uh, you know teaching his hatred of America that seems to be a value system that he affirms so the question is is does islam share the values of america and in islam the core legal value is sharia law because what what we have to understand and and the propaganda against this just just increases is that Islam is not just a religion, it's a political theory, it's a political philosophy based on Sharia law, and when you have a Sharia law there, every Muslim is sworn allegiance to Sharia law, so the question becomes, can a Muslim, a true believer in Allah, Islam, and the Quran, can they swear allegiance to the constitution? and further can they legally be allowed to immigrate to the united states let me read something to you that is from the immigration and national act of ju, ju, passed on june 27th in 1952 which revised all previous laws related to immigration naturalization and nationality for the for the united states and this is found in some of this information is found in chapter 2 of that Uh, documents, it's 60-something pages, Uh, Chapter 2, Section 212, which prohibits the entry to the United States of any alien that belongs to an organization that seeks to overthrow the government of the United States by, quote, force, violence or other unconstitutional means. And if you read through the whole paragraph, which I did this afternoon in a couple of pages, it becomes very clear that if someone who swears allegiance to the Quran, who's Islamic, that they cannot swear allegiance to the Constitution, that they are by definition here, which is being ignored, they have sworn allegiance to an organization because the Quran teaches that, that all other religions and governments need to be supplanted by Islam and Sharia law. So their values, are, these are not shared values. But when you live in a in an environment that we've lived in in this country for the last 30 years where postmodernism has captured people's mentality, then there's no value that you can appeal to to give you wisdom to deal with something like this. And see, the reason that's important is because Israel lived in the same kind of problem at the time of Samuel. Israel lived at a time when when the whole nation was doing what? There was no God in the land. They said, Yahweh, take a hike. There's no God in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's exactly where we are as a nation today. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And so the elders of Israel have come to Samuel and said, we want to have have a God like, like every other God. Now, the second second thing that I want to point out in terms of background, the first was that there should be integrity and righteousness in terms of leadership based on Deuteronomy 1 and Deuteronomy uh, 16, uh, 18 to 20. A uh, second is, when we get into the 17th chapter, that the standard of judicial authority is the law, and everyone, including the king, is under the law. And this is spelled out in... Uh, chapter 17, verses 2 and following, and it spells out v- various laws. And so, and it and part of this is the prompt acting of justice, you know, arresting a criminal and punishing them is described here. And the basis for this judicial action is the covenant that God made with Israel and the rights that God delegates to the people within that Within that, that covenant. Justice within the covenant is quick and sure and personal. So there's rules for witnesses given here. There's rule for appeal here. If it's too complicated, Moses says then the lower judges bring it up the chain of command and eventually to him. And one other thing we should note is though the punishment of these crimes seems to be pretty severe. For example, uh, in adultery that the woman should be stoned to death. Now, the fact that we're living in the New Testament church age doesn't mean that adultery is no longer wrong. The penalty is no longer adjudicated because we're not in a nation state. But the sin, whatever these sins are that are identified, whether it's homosexuality or adultery or thievery or lying, we may not have the same penalties but the acts themselves are still wrong, and 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 so we must hold to that particular uh, that particular standard. So we see uh, this is spelled out in 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 those particular verses from what was that from two to thirteen, and then the last thing I want to look at is the responsibility of the king that's spelled out in verses fourteen through twenty. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, God says, "I will." You will say. He's predicting this. I will set a king over me. What's that next phrase? Like all the nations. God just nails it in prophecy. He knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. Just, just kind of unusual how that happens, isn't it? I will say when you say, "I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are around me." You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. You see, God exercises his prior, uh, His privilege there, and he says, You may say you want a king like everybody else, but you're going to get the king that I designate. I'm going to be the one to, to choose the king. And in verse 15, he, he goes on to say, He's going to be one from among your brethren. You shall set a king over you. That's, that's what would be known in our Constitution as a natural-born citizen. Now, we all know there's a lot of debate over that. There was a lot of debate over that with Barack Obama. There's going to be debate over that because of Ted Cruz, because he was born. His mother was an American citizen, but he was born in Canada. Somebody wrote this on a blog that was talking about natural-born citizen, and somebody responded and said, I just think that's so prejudicial Because what about those who are born with (laughs) C-section? Our government education at work. Okay, so it's natural-born citizen, basically, one among your brethren, you'll set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Why? Because you don't have shared values. You don't have the shared cultural value. He doesn't understand who you are. So it has to be somebody who's come up within your cultural milieu. And then there are several pro- pro- prohibitions, and these prohibitions are that you, he he can't use the office to get wealth. Now I know an an that I was told about by a representative here in in Texas who told me of another representative th- that had a a net worth of less than $300,000 when he got elected to congress and his net worth now is around 3 million now with the salary that they get paid how can that happen see that's corruption and 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 this this goes on and and leaders are not to uh they are not to become wealthy serving the people. They're not to multiply horses for himself. He's not to multiply wives for himself, lest he be turned to another god because the wife will influence him. This would happen with Solomon. And he can't multiply gold and silver for himself. He's not there to get rich. So in verse 18, what was he supposed to do? He's write, supposed to write a copy of the law in a book. He's going to handwrite this out on parchment. That's going to take a while for him to handwrite the book he's going to he's going to have to handwrite it out and then he has to carry it with him all the time and he shall read it all the days of his life why to fear the lord that is true when i talk about how important it is to read your bible sure you're going to read passages i read passages i don't understand i put a question mark next to them but when we read the Bible, you can figure out the high points, and it reminds us that we're supposed to fear the Lord, and fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs. So he's supposed to read the law, the Torah, every day to fear the, law, law, the Lord, and second, to be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. So that is what's going to shape the thinking of the king. He has to be focused on the doctrine that's taught in the Torah. And then, as a result of that, he will have a wise rule. But there were many times in the reign of the Southern Kingdom as well as the Northern Kingdom where the law disappeared. Nobody even saw a copy of it for a couple of generations. It just disappeared. And then like in the time of Josiah, suddenly a copy of the law was discovered, and Josiah sat and read it and called the people to repentance, and and God was gracious to them. But the king has to have a set of values, and those set of values need to be the values of the people. And whether a lot of people in this country like it or not, this country was founded. The Constitution and the laws and the Bill of Rights of this nation were grounded on a Judeo-Christian heritage, and if that is not followed, this nation will collapse. And that's pretty much what happened with Israel again and again. But God was always gracious and always brought them back. But we're not Israel. We'll come back next time and get into the events of First Samuel 8. Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon what you've revealed in terms of government, to come to understand that there's a standard in Scripture and that we as believers should go to that. Not that we're trying to implement the law, but that that sets an example for us, a standard for us. It, it sets a framework for us uh, to apply when we think about leadership and when we think about uh, politics and when we think about choosing government leaders. Now, Father, we pray that as we go to our homes tonight and we go maybe travel this weekend, we celebrate Thanksgiving with friends and family, that for us that our Thanksgiving will be Uh, significantly different as we reflect upon your grace and your goodness to us, all the things that you've provided for us, reflecting upon the great freedoms that, that liberty has given us, and that we might not forget to pray for, to pray for this nation, to pray for this congregation, to pray for our friends and our family, that we might be able to pursue our spiritual life without, with peace, And without interference from outside forces, government forces that would seek to prevent us from applying our Christian beliefs. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.